Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I'm a Chicago-based entrepreneur, author, podcast host, pop culture commentator, and Be There in Five is a long-form podcast that's typically solo monologue style that I started really to talk about pop culture, life, anything in the millennial ethos in a different, more detailed, perhaps at times analytic way than is often represented in mainstream media. The be there and five of it all is I get distracted. I I dive deep. I, I get a little too caught up in like, I don't know, that this week I, I spent one of my lunch breaks making a Venn diagram about which bloggers, you know, I felt had the biggest berry picking energy. You know, I'll get to that later. But these are the things that I find pressing and important and <laughs> where I think a lot of people report on what happened. I, I try to tell you what I think it means. And I also try to focus on aspects of our lives that um, aren't always things that we visit all the time, whether doing a deep dive and crowdsourcing stories about uh, being a, you know, the horrible experiences or the, the high volume of uh, floral robes you have as a bridesmaid and uh, sorority stories, bumble stories, doing TikTok deep dives, talking about the True Love Waits purity movement. I did a deep dive on Call Her Daddy. I have a four-hour piece on uh, the Free Britney where I interview a probate attorney. Anyway, all that to say, if you're new here, uh, every like I decided every like three to five episodes, I kind of reintroduce myself because sometimes I think people are like, "What's happening here?" Uh, but yeah, you know, Joe Rogan talks for four hours a week about wrestling. I sure as hell can talk for. Two hours about big berry picking energy? Why the hell not? I'm <laughs> just kidding. I won't talk about it for that long. But what I do is when I don't deep dive, I do things that I call snorkels. And basically that just means I spend about 10 to 15 minutes on a given topic that I've been asked about a lot lately or something's going on in that arena. And yeah, they kind of are a good way to change up in between uh, topical deep dives. So I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for joining and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I want to talk through a bunch of different things. I'm not totally sure how I'm going to weave them together, if I'm honest. I've been obsessed with lately. You know how the Gen Zers, um, you know, it's a very popular like colloquialism, I guess. It's, it's uh, to a way to insult people right now that's kind of lighthearted is saying like, it's the blank for me. I first got familiar with it, honestly, because of an Addison Ray video where her and her mom and dad made fun of each other. And it was funny a, because her mom's accent was so strong. I never heard her talk before. Those piercing blue eyes were always distracting me. Uh, but I kind of like hear this in my head now as I do things on my podcast that I know people will like leave me a bad review about or like send me a DM about. But it's those things that like that's what's funny about life is that some of the things people want me to change the most or like the only reason most other people are here. And that's why you can't listen to that stuff. But framing it in the context of, you know, it's the rambling for me. It's the tangents for me. I mean, honestly, it's the Venn diagrams for me. Um, it kind of it's like a charming way to make fun of somebody without like degrading their character. You know, I'm very into it. And I also think I like the addition of for me, because exactly that's the hard thing in life is hyper specific feedback where every we live in a world where everybody thinks that you should have to cater what you're doing to their very specific needs and it's just not the case but yeah if it's the thing for you that's great it's just good for you not for me not for everyone else it's an important thing to remember you guys the thing i'll mention now and i swear i won't again the desperation is uh you know i'm an independent podcaster my only hope is if you guys share things on stories if you like an episode i haven't recorded this yet and i don't <laughs> maybe i'll take this back 
but if you like the podcast, tell a friend, share it on your stories. If you're private, send it to me. It means the world. Uh, truly, you have no idea. So just something to consider. If, if at any point you think something's enlightening. This episode, what I'm going to, what I think I'm going to weave through is, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I haven't talked about influencers in a while. You know, I have all the thoughts. I'm actually kind of into this big berry picking energy thing. And I want to weave through uh, kind of my uh, thesis with my Venn diagram about what are the what are the connections between three of my you know favorite attributes that I don't actually think are the same person at all uh, in terms of big berry picking energy, people that do my other favorite thing, traveling for the blooms uh, and or big patch energy, pumpkin patchers, uh, apple pickers. My God, <laughs> these these fascinating influencer foragers. Uh, anyways, it's kind of a long story, but I basically, after seeing a photo of Julia Engel Barrelsheimer from Gal Meets Glam with her daughter picking blackberries, I got like into this mental tangent of like, I would never pick blackberries. Like, who is this person and why do bloggers do these things? Is it for photos? Is it a fundamental different type of fundamentally different type of person? Let's explore. These are the really pressing topics we cover here. Beyond that, I actually want to address something that like I've Several people have asked if I'd cover or deep dive on, and I never wanted to bring attention to it, but it's also pretty mainstream at this point, and I don't know, probably worth chatting about, which is, uh, you know, QAnon influencers. My God, they're rampant. It's a problem. I also, to tie into that, kind of want to talk about what happened with Wayfair for a minute, even though it's over. I never brought it up on the podcast, but that was like such a fascinating thing that went down on Instagram when I tried to explain, you know, logically what might have happened. Uh, beyond that, somebody reached out and told me I had popular girl handwriting and it was like the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. And I was like, I want to, can we talk about popular girl handwriting? That's such a thing. That is an actual tangible thing that I haven't thought about in so long. And, uh, the other, oh, and I also want to talk to parents, like moms, especially like the other day reading that New York times article, um, about the implications of COVID and virtual learning on the workforce and the specific burden uh, that women are bearing right now, more so than men, because of uh, the defaults that often happens with childcare duties and women being more involved and people that are having to resign from their you know, careers they work their asses off for that they don't want to resign from, but there's nobody to watch their children and their work is requiring them to be in the office. And I just want to start the conversation, talk about it, tell you some stories I've heard tell you some solutions people have said, like not solutions, but ways you can support parents uh, that, you know, your friends that are are uh, really struggling right now to balance their career in a world where all we want is equity in the labor force. And this is this has a severe chance of setting us back in a meaningful way. And uh, I just for women that do want to work and that is their choice. I don't know. It just it kills me that um, you're at risk of having to exit the workforce when the data shows how hard it is to re-enter. And I just think it's important to talk about because I don't want people to think it's like needless complaining when from my what I've heard on Instagram, so many of you guys are going through this right now. And I know times are like dire. And anyway, I hope I can equal parts entertain you. We can also have a meaningful, meaningful discussion. But anyway, back to the hot goss, the Venn diagrams. <laughs> I feel like Stefan, the, the, they've got everything. Concentric circles, the opportunity to use a protractor to draw a gorgeously perfect circle. Mutual exclusivity representations, along with simultaneously overlapping instances in the intersection, they allow you to simply visualize data uh, in a way that a second grader could do. In this context, I 
the three circles of the Venn diagram are influencer behaviors that I wanted to examine their relationship among. Um, as I mentioned, traveling for the blooms, uh, berry picking, and uh, pumpkin patch, you know, fall foliage type activities. If you're if you've been around a while, you know, traveling for the blooms is one of my favorite things ever. But if you're not familiar, uh, th- this is this to me is like the ultimate luxurious influencer behavior that I find absolutely hilarious, which is when you specifically travel um, just to look at flowers and take photos of them in some exotic location. And they only bloom for a finite period of time that you must capitalize on. It's the botanical tourism for me. Beyond that, I love big patch energy, pumpkin patch goers. I love pursuers of fall foliage. I love a berry picker. I love anybody who puts food in a basket then artfully takes a photo of all of the whole fruits and vegetables on a chunky farm statement table. Uh, prior to carefully meal planning and assembling them into different dishes that will somehow last them and their family the entire week. When I'm like, what the hell are you going to do with that turnip? Like, literally, I cannot think of a single dish that requires a turnip, but you got a fistful. Peter Rabbit, I want to be the type of person that when I go to a website to make a simple recipe after having to read the life story of somebody's granny, like Mima and Papa. I, I know every detail of their life that I could probably answer their security questions and, you know, a casual banking forgot password situation in order to get to a recipe that I thought was simple, but inevitably always calls for a shallot. I don't have shallots lying. Do people have shallots lying around? I, I, I would never buy a shallot out of turn. I want to be that person. I want to be a person that I have this desire to, like, do everything so earthy and fresh and to requires so much assembly and labor and making it into something. And like, I just like, I would be bored in a flower field. And I don't know what that says about me. I I struggle to enjoy things like that and make time for them. And when bloggers have this very earthy uh, aesthetic and seem to forage for their meals uh, and by forage, you know, whether you're picking berries or going to a farmer's market, I'm just kind of amazed by people that put so much labor and assembly and care and thought and effort into these everyday aspects of life that I find overwhelming at best. There's just two types of people in the world, outside of the ones that entertain and the ones that observe. I almost just said new sponsor, check, and then hated it. Um, (laughs) I want to be Gen Z so bad. (laughs) Uh, We have a new sponsor, and I'm really excited. It's a company called Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. You may have noticed I talk about I've talked about CBD here and there. I've taken different forms of it for a long time. Uh, I am careful about who I align with on this product because I think quality matters. I think the company vision, leadership and customer support matters. I think dosage matters. I think formula and sourcing matters. I care about all the things because I think that this is an industry that where information can be easily uh, manipulated and people are so new to it. It's hard to discern what is is legit from what's not. And they really do prioritize what's so important and signature about CBD in that figuring out your personal dosage is so incredibly important to your experience. And there's a level of experimentation that it definitely requires. What I love about Feels is that they have a flight, just like my favorite wine tasting activity, where they deliver three samples of different strengths of CBD to help you figure out what's right for you. And most people feel something after the first time. You, It's super easy to take. You place a few drops under your tongue. And depending on how much you take, what you figure out with dosages, everything from just taking the edge off of, of, of stress and tension all the way to, you know, using it for sleeplessness, for chronic pain, 
CBD, as you probably well know, has so many incredible functions in, um, you know, reducing uh, a lot of the symptoms associated with highly stressful, intense situations. At least that's what I use it for. Also, because I have a hard time sleeping. They really simplified it not only with the you know flight of dosages, but also with a real human support hotline that is a free CBD hotline to help you guide your personal experience. And they have a hassle-free membership program that's guaranteed to help you feel your best month after month or your money back. It's that simple. They ship directly to your doorstep in only a few days. And if you're a person that also has trouble sleeping or deals with pain, deals with stress, and I hope you'll give it a try. Feels has me feeling my best every day. And I also can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash be there in five and you'll get 50% off your order with free shipping five zero and also 30% off all orders after the initial order of 50%. That's awesome. That is F E A L S.com slash be there in five to become a member and get 50% off automatically your first order with free shipping feels.com slash be there in five again, F E A L S. Thank you so much to feels happy to have you on board. There's just two types of people in the world outside of the ones that entertain and the ones that observe it's separate category there are people that like meal plan and buy what they need and then people that go to the grocery store hungry and just throw a bunch of shit in the cart and hope for the best i fall into that second category and by go to the grocery store hungry i mean instacart from bed and especially during peak farmer's market trendiness like 2010 to 2014 i like yeah a few times i i woke up i brought a canvas tote I stood in line and waited for a pour over coffee. God, that is slow. That is slow. I get mad when Starbucks doesn't have my mobile order ready, but I don't know. These farmers market goers with their tote bags and their baskets on their bikes and their, you know, overall philanthropic, wholesome demeanor that prioritizes local farms and sustainable foods. They also have the patience to wait for somebody to pour over their coffee. And I just I don't I don't know how to be that person, but I definitely tried to be. And I would buy all of these like really pretty like vegetables and fruits, some of which I was allergic to. But like, I don't know, I just wanted to fit in. And the hard part is like the people are so nice. And I've learned I have to be more unfriendly at a farmer's market, which I don't want to do. But I have to do that in order to protect myself from doing something like buying a, a fistful of rhubarb barbs. I, I, don't, I don't even know enough about rhubarbs to know if it's plural to say rhubarb or rhubarbs. I don't know what you make them with besides strawberry rhubarb pie, which I've never even had, which I think I also probably learned from Peter Rabbit, maybe Cottontail. I'm not sure. But it's too hard for me to listen to somebody's deep and meaningful story about their struggling family rhubarb farm. What am I going to take some samples of her artisanal honey and have her sell me the sob story about turnips and be like, okay, bye. Like, no, I'm going to support them. I'm too sensitive for these passing conversations with these local farmers. And I almost had to stop going altogether because I was buying so much random produce that I had no idea what to do with. And what am I talking about? I guess, long story short, I'm very impressed and amazed by people that like meal plan and go pick out exactly what they need and eat what they need and have inventive, interesting recipes while still managing to like have a job and a life and kids. And I just, I don't know, does that not take you six hours? It takes me hours to figure out what I want. I, I do like Trader Joe's. And by that, I mean, I've been eating a lot of their buffalo chicken dip that I can't endorse. Oh, my God. I can't speak more highly of it. It's outstanding. It is so, so rare that a popular party food bar dip, you know, Super Bowl type appetizer that dreams are made of that it pre-made is better than the real thing. But this is actually just as good, I think. <laughs> I'll have you know, I just cut out. I, I like I'll 
say something and then I'll be like, let me listen back to that. I feel like that was off putting. I just deleted a soundbite of me saying there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women by putting canned cubed chicken into buffalo chicken dips. And, you know, I don't want people to think I'm I need to check my privilege and the cost of a rotisserie chicken relative to a cubed canned chicken. I don't mean to be tone deaf, but I just really think it affects the quality. And I can't stand idly by and not make that statement. Um, you know, it's the snobby poultry opinions for me, but I just want people to know that you really should use a more shredded chicken situation if you're going to home make it. And that is where I do feel skilled in the kitchen as the owner of buffalochickenwrap.com, which it looks like it's up for sale, but it's not, but I'm working on it. And by working on it, I mean, it's like the 25th thing on my list that I've had for like five years that I'll probably never get to, but it's fun to think about. Anyway, Instacart too. Like I love Instacart. It's a grocery delivery service. Uh, there's also, um, there's a couple different versions of it. I think shipped is maybe the one that's in a lot of suburban areas. Uh, it's almost, I, I, I think that my conspiracy is that for, for groceries to work with Instacart, to like justify the shoppers and then like storing the bags there for pickup or doing deliveries or whatever. Like, I think that it, or, and to like get the grocery stores to comply with uploading their, you know, accurate inventory. I think that Instacart promises that they are going to uh, push the foods that either are expiring soon, that's a shopper in person wouldn't buy, and or they're going to select uh, undesirable produce and provide it to the Instacart recipient. Two things that I know are big uh, yielder of, of high waste in grocery stores that they want to correct for. Because I swear to God, if you say on Instacart, hey, grab me a peach. You know, you'd think they'd go to the normal peach place and just pick one from the top that looks decent. But to me, it truly seems like they go back to the stock room, look under the shelves. Hell, maybe go to the loading dock, see if a peach has been recently run over. They put that in my cart and give it to me. I, I'm not I mean, I'm not mad, though. I mean, I, I I I respect the hell out of the gig economy. I love companies like Instacart. They sustained me when I was busy and had two jobs and I'm actually going to make a case for the gig economy later because I think it's being under leveraged in this time when women are spread incredibly thin. And I just want to, you know, make a case. Uh, but how do we get to produce? Um, oh, because <laughs> last night I said I'm interested in influencers who like really seem to prioritize foraging. And it was Julia and her angle, Barrelsheimer and her sweet daughter, Clementine, looking impossibly fresh, uh, doing some light berry picking. Or so I thought. But now I'm a little confused because I think she was just at a place called Blackberry Farm, which is apparently this very bougie hotel in Tennessee. Anyway, I guess I'm the last person to figure out uh, to learn about this hotel, B&B, whatever it is. I haven't even Googled it. So I was saying that I thought I was interested in uh, how Julia forages. Um, and then people were like, no, that's a hotel. And then I was like, cool, cool. But regardless, can we all agree that Julia Barrelsheimer is big berry picking energy? And people were like, oh, yeah, for sure. I was like, yeah, exactly. That's like what I'm saying. Regardless of if this place is like for functional berry picking or not, she has BBPE. And then on my lunch break, I was kind of thinking, OK, this is one of my one of my favorite things about bloggers. Like I said earlier, people that travel for the blooms. Traveling for the blooms fascinates me for several reasons. One being how much money you would have to have to just like it's not to to travel for something so hyper specific that's so like it's it's purely aesthetic it's it's not functional right it's not like you're going to visit some like historical landmark or some i don't know it's 
It just seems like this comically photocentric thing that I'm sure is very beautiful in front of your eyes, but is pretty much reserved for very wealthy people who need aesthetically pleasing, uncontroversial, aspirational, but accessible content because it's not like you have to be blatantly wealthy to see flowers. Like you, if you have, if you can see, if you have eyesight, you could see flowers. And when people see the beautiful photo, they're not necessarily calculating the airfare and hotel costs that goes along with seeing those flowers. So it's kind of like this way to do something really beautiful that like Loki means you're rich, but isn't like as blatant as showing off a Chanel bag because we'd be like, oh, wow, conspicuous consumption. How exciting. But it's too showy. But on the flip side, really boring floral content is the pits like florals for spring groundbreaking. Oh, things are blooming in your neighborhood. What a nice uh, highway median that is. I, you know, it's like bad flower pictures are a real bummer. Elevated flower pictures are really aspirational content that is super bougie, but not very uh, ostentatious in its depiction of your wealth. So I find it to be this fascinating, subtle thing a lot of wealthy people do who also have to either be have some photography skill themselves, but more likely have an influencer husband with a DSLR who, by force or free will, had to learn how to take photos to be betrothed to this blogger. And that's what led me to this Venn diagram, because I was kind of like, okay, well, what do berry pickers and people that travel for the blooms, the botanical tourists, are they the same person? And I was like, actually, no. Berry picking is more accessible. It's more like actual foraging, more like cottage cores we talked about on the Taylor episode. I've never in my life woken up and thought like, wow, I'm dying to hunt for my own food today. Let's go pick berries and not get full off of them. But I don't know, for some, this may be a way of life. I'd argue berry picking is more often an aesthetic pursuit, uh, but it can be functional. Whereas traveling for the blooms is only functional in the event that you're a legit photographer, like by trade. Or, you know what I mean, like a travel photographer or something. Otherwise, it's just for leisure. And if that's what you do for leisure, you're probably quite rich. But those who berry pick don't necessarily have to be rich because that's a more accessible activity that could be nearby. So that's where I got to this Venn diagram. But then I threw in a real wrench when I said, well, what about pumpkin patchers? If you have big patch energy, that would suggest you're basic. And basic as in I pick my own berries, I like a basic way of living is different from the pumpkin spice pumpkin patch i love cider and donuts let's take photos on a hayride all you can carry pumpkins oh my gosh what a great dad slash husband because he's carrying a lot of gourds uh you know seasonal one-off apple picking throw a fur vest on over a buffalo check and a distressed denim with a fall ankle boot and a full dry bar barrel curl basic you know those are two different types of basics so i can't I can't say pumpkin patching and berry picking are, are like they have, have several mutual exclusivities. But the one the, what, what they have in common is that these people probably have kids if you both berry pick and patch it up. What these all three have in common are, you know, they love farmers markets. Like I said, they own a bike with a basket. They probably collect things, whether it's like vintage glassware or like brooches or, or cameo pendants, you know. But th- th- this is the type of person that has like one Mackenzie Childs item in their home but does not collect things such as Mackenzie's Child, which I refer to as Ray Dunn because of the god-awful Comic Sans font used by Ray Dunn products that apparently are highly collectible, though I find it very confusing. There's a lot of commonalities amongst the three, but several mutual mutual exclusivities that need to be called out, as well as overlaps only between two. For example, a a basic pumpkin patcher 
with a you know base level desire for fall coziness, you know, who has a pulse essentially, uh, paired with the person with the wealth and pho- like photography skills of a traveler for blooms, would probably also travel for fall foliage because that's what those two have in common. But a berry picker doesn't necessarily need to be of the fall pursuit. I should also clarify what I mean by this is like okay, if you're going to Provence to see the lavender fields, even if you drive to the outskirts of Chicago for the sunflower fields. If you like go out of your way, so you have a bouquet of wildflowers in your home that's fresh at all times that lasts for like three days. And you, you think like you're willing to put time to drive to pick said wildflowers, just like have them and look at them on your table, knowing they're going to die soon. Like that's a type of person I long to be. Anyways, <laughs> or um, oh, like the Japanese cherry blossoms is a big one or like biking in the Amsterdam countryside to see the tulips is, is one. In D.C., there are those cherry trees that bloom for a week. Or you go you could go to Texas to see the blue bonnets or de Monet's gardens in France. I, I, I would argue that a, a casual photo on your study abroad pilgrimage to, you know, see the outside of the Churchill Arms in London counts too. You know, I, there's a lot of different ways one might pursue the likes of botanical tourism, but the mutually exclusive version of a botanical tourist is is um, rich, likes photography, and doesn't necessarily need to be a blogger. Um, but you know they're a blogger if they do things like go to pumpkin patches or take photos berry picking that are very like photo worthy things that aren't necessarily functional to whatever. <laughs> I'm getting way too far into this. But my point is, there's this weird intersection of traveling for the blooms and pumpkin patching where you take like the basic filter applying, you know, Instagram caption drafting for hours, photoshopping. There's, a, you know, the, the typical pumpkin patcher, what they're trying to convey on social media um, you know, we take it at face value. We take it for what it is. Like, cool, you went to your local pumpkin patch. That's cozy as hell. Can't wait to go get some cider and donuts myself. But when you add in the wealth, the means, the talent, the photography skills, the things that the attributes common to a mutually exclusive travel for the bloomers, the overlap of that in a pumpkin patcher is this problematic area that I don't even know how to define where to begin. But it is where somebody um, facetunes Mother Nature. And by that, I mean, I'm talking about KJP and Sarah Vickers. And they think that it's appropriate to mislead travelers by adding a fake smokestack in a photo, for example, just so it looks like it has that extra Goldilocks and the Three Bears flair. It looks, you know, like Little Red Riding's hood. It's a adorable cottage deep in the forest amongst the foliage, often with a smokestack. The the often on a lake that is a crystal clear, still mirror-like waters. It's just so beautiful and so unrealistic. As I learned last year when I started the hashtag FAUX Liage Foliage, like faux foliage. There are foliage trackers that we can go fact check the accuracy of where you say you are in New England. And I just find that whole way of being incredibly frustrating. So all that to say, it's not necessarily desirable to be a bloom traveler and a patcher. Uh, but when you throw in that kind of cottage core, um, down home, uh, hands on foraging of a berry picker, it kind of rounds out this person to be a little bit more down to earth and to have genuine interest in the outdoors that grounds their content in a way that feels more accessible and believable. All that to say, if you didn't, <laughs> if you didn't see my Venn diagram on my Instagram stories, I'm sure you're very lost. None of this is important or matters. And if you don't understand it, it's because it makes no sense. But this is just like kind of where I am in my life right now and the things I want to think about because thinking about real issues and problems hurts my head. 
So sometimes I just like to get lost in some big berry picking energy. And I I love a blogger that seems to be uh, one with nature, but also is wearing a $1,500 dress from the end sale. You know, it's just the perfect juxtaposition of, of access and luxury that I need in my life to remind me that I can't afford that dress, nor can I eat most raw berries because of my food allergies. Trust me, I know. It's the peanut kid for me. I'm not the peanut kid, but like, I, it's just oral allergy syndrome, so I'm allergic to like, uh, you know, nobody cares. <laughs> what say? But lastly, on the blogger note, I mean, I figure that's people like talking about bloggers, so I'll just <laughs> finish out my thoughts. I literally, I could talk just even about my fascination with Instagram husbands slash photographer husbands and their willingness to go to these places with like blooms or berries and take hundreds and hundreds of photos. Like you guys know, I've, I, I, I've talked about tea barrels before my fascination with what a great, he just seems like a great husband. That's like just down to do aesthetically pleasing things and take photos of his highly photogenic wife. Oh yeah. What I was saying earlier is I think she's an example of a person who's always been wealthy. We've seen things get even better for them over time. She is who she is. Her content's consistent. The aesthetic has been there for like a decade uh her husband tom i'm talking about julia from gal meets glam if i didn't specify that though she did rebrand to her married name julia barrelsheimer.com like that's a person i don't it's like i i don't really hold wealth against anybody like i said it's how you know how you portray it but she's an example of a person that's just always obviously had money but she seems like a nice well-adjusted person who's also been incredibly charitable and you know open throughout her journey in a way that like I think at this point a decade in we're pretty clear on you know what type of person these these bloggers are and I think she's been a very consistent well-liked positively received influencer and I feel like her snark if anything is more so the type of snark I like doing which is just being really impressed and confused by people's really sophisticated and or expensive behaviors because they are often aspirational and interesting. And I don't know, I like to follow people whose lives are different than mine. And um, anyway, the so her husband, Thomas, it like takes photos of her and is a huge part of the operation. And I just, I think I'm fascinated by the correlation between having an Instagram photographer husband and the success of a blogging venture. My husband, it, like, he's so nice and he's so wonderful and he does so many things for me. And it's almost disproportionate and confusing how little he wants to take photos of me. I, I, I get a huff and a puff if I say, hey, can you turn the flash on for a second photo? God forbid I ask, ask to switch from landscape to portrait. On what planet do you think I want this shot in landscape, bud? Um, but tea barrels, not only. Does he take hundreds and hundreds of beautiful digital DSLR level photography and video footage for his wife's blog and Instagram and fashion line? He will go as far as to get like old school film, like actual film from the 90s. He will take the photos with a finite amount of film, wait for them to develop, go through the developed photos and pick out the best. I mean, like, long story short, you guys, never compare your content to somebody that has the benefit of either like a best friend, roommate, partner, boyfriend, lover, husband that has photography equipment and skill. They're just, they, they, they are built to soar. And I have a bunch of awkwardly posed photos of myself in the dark because my husband wouldn't turn on the flash, 
whereas tea barrels would probably build a dark room in their new construction home bought by the beautiful photos they took. So just a moment of appreciation for the influencer husband. There's a lot to make fun of there, but also there is a lot of reason why people are successful if they're in business with their partner. I think for a lot of couples, it would be their absolute demise. My husband and I, I would never, ever have him work for me or work for like my brand or entity. We're not, I don't know, we're not codependent slash I think that we get a lot of purpose and satisfaction from our own pursuits. But I think some people like the rise and grind and work in tandem vibe. But I'm not going to force it. I, I love him dearly and I want him to do things he wants to do. And I'm, I, if you ever hear my relationship advice, I'm very big into minimizing the instance, uh, future instance, instances of resentment. Because anything you coerce someone to do, force them to do, nag them to do whatever, it, it, everything needs to have a small amount of um, natural like interest or purpose or personal decision making involved with it on the other person's part or else they'll hold it against you because you're wholly responsible for making them do something. I've talked about how like just because he's not my target audience uh, on and off I'll block him from my stories because it's just not the stuff like he's interested in or cares about and people have trouble seeing the value of things that they're like unfamiliar with and I just don't want in my household to be like having to explain to him why I'm so frustrated by Dixie D'Amelio's lack of enthusiasm and her SpawnCon and her YouTube videos, why everything seems like a giant obligation and she's raking in millions of dollars for just simply existing. Do I blame her? No. Do I wish she would put a little more oomph into things? Absolutely. But I don't want to spend my dinner time talking about that, so it's better to just leave him out of it. But also, recently I was playing with his account because I was trying to restrict somebody now that like people think I'm part of the deep state because I said it that... There's a, you know, it's highly unlikely Wayfair is selling children in the storage lockers and tried to explain like drop shipping. But instead of like accepting my logic, people just were like, you're a part of it. You're a problem. Oh, you're a Kennedy. Like, you know, middle finger, middle finger, pizza, pizza. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, OK, well, need to get these people out of here. And I wasn't sure what the difference between restricting and blocking was. So I did it to him and then went on his. And he's the only person, other person in my house who's like, I can check how this works. But if you block somebody, it makes them unfollow you and it makes you unfollow them. And I was kind of laughing because it's like front page CNN news if somebody unfollows somebody now. And I'm like, ooh, what a scandal. We, un we were unfollowing each other for like a full day. And I was like, this is how, I don't know, people read so much into Instagram behavior and likes and activities and this and that. And half the time, I just don't think it, like, it matters. Or I swear, I think Taylor Swift's, um, she has like a different form of Instagram and her likes are automated. Because like when one of her friends or Joe or somebody posts an image, she likes it within the first 30 seconds, like automatically. I swear there's like an alert set or something because it is news when she does or doesn't like something. Anyway, yeah, on that note, a ton of people have asked, like, what do I think about all the influencers sharing like QAnon stuff? Um, you know, those curated accounts that are like sharing like Pinterest level graphic design uh, to talk about like, you know, saving the children. And it's confusing why there's so much, mostly people are like, why is everyone talking about trafficking all of a sudden? No one's saying trafficking is not important. Everyone's just saying, wow, this is a really like popular conversation topic right now. And do I have thoughts about this? Absolutely. I think this is a really interesting actually, because, well, for a couple reasons, uh, one being that, and this is another reason why I'm just trying to figure out how to restrict or block people is that I simply posed a question the other day, like, um, you know, for people that really buy into QAnon, that really think that uh, Trump is this hero trying to save all the children, and I'll explain that in a second. 
how were people not livid that he wished Ghislaine, Ghislaine, Maxwell well uh, when you, people are like rapid fire putting pizza emojis uh, and calling Chrissy Teigen a pedophile and like torturing her in any post about her new pregnancy. Uh, yet she wasn't she's not implicated like she's not on the flight logs. Trump is on the flight logs. But when he says something directly against what you're saying he's for, you instead choose to conveniently say he's being sarcastic, whereas somebody who's not even associated with it is guilty. It's just the whole thing is bizarre. If you watch the clip of him wishing her well, it read, doesn't read as sarcasm or code. It reads like tiptoeing nervously because here's the thing. It's like it's not the, the people that are were involved with Epstein and co. It's not limited to a political party. It's it's a power thing. And it's a lot of people trying to cover their own asses right now. And it's just, I don't know. Anyway, I'll, let me kind of break this down a little bit better. But I just think it's interesting how people are conveniently using the um, Epstein narrative in combination with the general tra child trafficking narrative um, to suggest Trump is the one saving them. But Trump is like, you know, on the record and in photos and on flight records to have been on his plane and have been friends with him. And even though he's not friends with him anymore, I don't care if he never stayed at Mar-a-Lago, whatever. He is more involvement with than the a lot of the people that everybody is like trolling for being involved with him. But the I guess the, the, the craziest part of all is that theoretically, Trump is the one that is fighting against this so hard. And I just don't think it lines up or makes sense or is logical. And to me, uh, everybody is just trying to stay out of it because they have such potential to be implicated by whatever happens with Ghislaine's trial. And uh, I don't know, I just find it to not line up. And uh, naturally, people did not respond well to that, who I guess follow and subscribe to this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, if you're new to this uh, QAnon phenomenon, I will snorkel through it because I, yeah, I've never really talked about that or Wayfair, the, in the QAnon influencers or whatever. So anyway, I want to thank our next sponsor, which I've talked about before. It's called Nutrafol. 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. I am one of these people that is consistently in shock and awe by my shedding ability around the house as time goes on. And I'm watching my hairline like a hawk. But anyway, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the five root causes of thinning. Stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. It is physician formulated to be 100% drug free. They use medical grade botanicals in consistently effective dosages so you get the most reliable results. No matter your stage in life, there is a solution. They actually have two... Um, different like targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding through all stages of life and you'll begin to experience thicker stronger faster growing hair in three to six months i know this is tricky in terms of, of the a product that requires a little bit of time hi tugboat he um, honestly he's the favorite of the household because he's hypoallergenic he doesn't shed unlike his mother what you can do is visit neutrophil.com and take their hair wellness quiz for personalized product recommendations that are unique to your hair's needs I also think that a lot of my hair issues come from like years and years of overstyling and heat. <laughs> and I first got interested in it because I heard it on our, our pals Girls Gotta Eat podcast. And I saw Rachel Zoe and a few other women I really like uh, endorse it. And I was like, I need to look into this. And I don't know if you've been able to tell, but from my new brunette vibes to like Taylor Swift, uh, fearless era curls to stick straightening it to, you know, being bold enough to venture into a middle part. I was safe to say I'm feeling my hair lately. And um, I'm not, you know, I'm only a couple, two, three months into the process. But uh, sure enough, I actually legitimately do think my hair looks 
healthier and feel stronger. And I know that's so arbitrary and like hard to communicate if you can't like see me in person. But I hope you know that I endorse things that I genuinely like. But besides my own endorsement in the clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. More than 1,500 top doctors recommend a Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. So you can grow thicker, healthier hair, and support my show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code BETHERE in 5 and new customers will get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere. 20% off. This is solid. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get 20% off, once again, at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code BETHEREIN5. And I will put that code in the show notes and on my website under the podcast header for promo codes so you can refer to that. And thank you to Nutrafol. And I think a lot of people like sharing the stats and data maybe don't realize the um, origin of the post and what those accounts are really like aiming to do. I guess to back up for a second. So basically QAnon is like this giant conspiracy theory that at a very basic level, no joke, believes in that there's a global ring of mostly Democratic elites and Hollywood elites that are Satan-worshipping child predators, criminals that feed off of the blood of like children and animals through like Satan worshiping sacrifices to uh, basically have access to a certain chemical that yields high performance and like life extension. It's called like, it's called, what's it called? Adrenochrome. You go to any of Chrissy Teigen's posts, you'll see somebody commenting that over and over or a pizza emoji, which is nodding to Pizzagate, which if you remember, ironically, this alt-right movement from the last election in 2016, when people were convinced that there was a global conspiracy involving um, a bunch of pedophiles and child traffickers operating out of a pizza place in D.C. that culminated in December, a 29-year-old man from North Carolina showing up with a military assault rifle to the pizza place and found nothing and was sentenced to four years in prison. Even the you know spearheader of like Infowars, that Alex Jones guy, even he had to backtrack and be like, yeah, that wasn't all there. It, it 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 it's it was a huge huge problem that put a lot of people's reputations on the line that could have hurt people that hurt businesses that just completely got people all riled up for a whole lot of nothing and it seems like people never learned and that's the issue with conspiracy theories is the reframing of the narrative uh when the things they predict never happen because they never happen but for people that want to consume news content and, and political information as if it's some video game or, or movie. It's an interesting theory you can read on Reddit and 4chan and other message boards from very convincing people who really want you to think that there's this, you know, deep state uh, of child trafficking going on. But beyond that, the reason it's relevant to COVID-19 and right now is because the QAnon movement largely based off of these anonymous tips by a person or a group of people that identify, you know, as Q somehow in their username that first was on 4chan, which is a message board that's like sketchier than Reddit, and then was on 8chan and now is on some other offshoot where they think a government official under that name is tipping them about uh, like really uh, top secret intelligence. And the, the premise is like Trump is this like hero and he is you know, was specifically brought in by military to be president, you know, 
take down the deep state and to take down corruption. And that he, there at a time during the beginning of COVID-19, and I never wanted to talk about this before because I don't want to draw attention to it. I don't want people like going to these sites and like believing this stuff. But I actually think it's, I mean, it was in the New York Times twice last week. It's hit the mainstream media enough where I think most people vaguely know what it is, even though I'm not describing it perfectly. But I'd argue I don't need to because this is not something I believe. Um, and I think that a lot of it is a lot of things people make up and that therefore the narrative does get a little bit confusing. But um, they think Trump is, you know, this patriot who's going to take down this this satanic cabal. Um, and during the beginning of COVID-19, especially, the, they thought COVID-19 was a hoax and it was really a cover for Trump and, you know, other right right wing government officials and military operatives to be secretly saving all of these children from child trafficking they were being like held against their will by these Satan worshiping Democrats. Uh, it is as crazy. It's, it's as crazy as it sounds. And they would say things like there will be a blackout. All Internet and phones will go out. But it's OK. Stay calm. The truth is coming. And like then they would never happen. Like nothing would ever happen that they said would come true. But they kept alluding to like uh, this. It's you know, we we have to stay inside so, uh, you know, all of the people won't be su suspect that they're actually undergoing these operations to save the children. And any time that didn't happen or Trump didn't do something in, his fa in their favor or he actively spoke out, a, you know, and said the opposite of what they thought he was going to do, they either say he's being sarcastic, speaking in code, sending them a signal. But whatever the narrative is, they maneuver it in Trump's favor. And that sort of thing is what informs people to, like, not wear masks, for example, not follow CDC guidelines, not take COVID-19 seriously. Because, a, you know, a baseless Internet rumor about that somehow weaves in the very important and very real issue of child trafficking, when really these are two totally separate things. To me, the problem is child trafficking is very real and it's horrifying and it's more prevalent than anybody probably thinks. And that is true. Epstein, Ghislaine and co. were involved with predatory behavior with trafficking minors with you know basically having a, a underage sex ring with very powerful and elite people like these are things that are credible but conspiracy theories take morsels of truth and hugely exaggerate them to worst case scenarios to unrealistic plot lines to scare tactics that essentially are designed to recruit by latching on to an unobjectionable issue that will make it so that if you aren't for them, you're against them. And child trafficking is something literally nobody wants. Like, it is horrifying. Like, I can't, there aren't words for how scary I think it must be for, for parents to hear that type of information. And I don't blame anybody for wanting to take action against it. But the problem is that a very real issue because nobody wants children trafficked and every parent ever is going to be horrified of that information. They're using that uh, issue to weave in political, their far right political agenda that has blurred the lines between like what is just talking about the issue of trafficking and what is the QAnon issue or the QAnon initiative that is kind of has taken on trafficking as their core philanthropy. And the QAnon believers have flooded hashtags like Save the Children, that is a campaign from the organization that's a, for legitimate fundraising for the Save the Children charity. But when you dig in there, 
these believers, followers, they they kind of shift the messaging to the theories about who's doing this trafficking and bring it back to the satanic cabal of people like Tom Hanks, the Pope, Oprah. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democrat issue. It's a people issue. It's a, it's a criminal issue. And over-associating it with this extremist political agenda has created this environment of, well, if I support and share this child trafficking information whose source I can't really discern because it's completely you know, aligned with these QAnon theories I don't support, then I'm not going to share it. Or people that do get involved with the child trafficking conversation as a result of QAnon kind of adopt this herd mentality that is very us, us against the world and that the more people outside of the, a movement push back on something, the thicker the thieves get on the inside of the organization. And instead of engaging in dialogue, pursuing, you know, a little bit of uh, critical thinking, they immediately lash out and claim you're a part of the problem or you support child trafficking, which is a is an unconscionable thing to support. And it's highly offensive that anybody would suggest that just because you don't, uh, you know, support the adjacent political agenda to the movement that you somehow are opposed to trafficking. But this is how illogical this entire mentality is. And the the most perverse thing of all to me is that in doing, you know, in flooding those hashtags and over associating themselves with legitimate child trafficking data and trying to align with organizations that actively, you know, try to combat it, they're diluting the cause in a sense by making it unclear what's legitimate and what's not, by deterring people from focusing on the trafficking because they're over associating it with the political agenda. And beyond that, actual uh, organizations that fight to combat child trafficking have said that their hotlines have been completely overloaded, that the the rampant misinformation and tips that have been coming in are a huge problem, and that in general, these legitimate anti-trafficking groups are being harmed more than they are helped by this added attention. Because of what they've some of them have said is like, according to the New York Times, is like, this is the attention and exposure we've wanted for years. But what's happening now is a misrepresentation and manipulation of information to serve uh, something that's completely separate from this issue. This, you know, immense conspiracy theory of all of these Hollywood and Democratic elites being responsible for the trafficking. And it's just it becomes impossible to disprove similar to religion or faith or something that's abstract in nature. When somebody believes something, it becomes very difficult to try to intellectualize what they believe in, because at that point, it's it's beyond proof and evidence. I mean, the FBI has said that QAnon poses a potential domestic terror threat and people still don't back off. It's fascinating and terrifying. And I just think that the irony of all ironies is the attempt to uh, displace, overtake and um, you know, minimize corruption and, and really take down this like sinister operation that they believe is in place solely to traffic children. But the irony of doing that through a sinister agenda to tie your far right politics to a very real and important issue that you allegedly care about, but you're actually exploiting to get your message across. It's hardly a vigilante effort and actually is really sad to me how much attention this is taking away from actual efforts to save the children because people just aren't taking it seriously. Because if you align with something that sounds as crazy as like feasting off the blood of children for some like chemical, I mean, 
it's just it's it sounds like so ridiculous and i feel like it's just i don't want legitimate child trafficking issues to lose credibility i do care or everybody should care but it's like i don't i now i see these things and i look at the accounts and you scroll down there are also people like doing side by sides showing like that taylor swift looks like this woman who's a satan worshiper and obviously she's reincarnated from this woman because everybody in hollywood like is a sat like a satanist or whatever and those theories are deeply rooted in like illuminati freemason knights templar new world order type chats that have been going on forever but this is kind of just a hyper specific um initiative that happens to be during an election year that happens to have trump at the helm as the hero of in, regardless of your political affiliation that's the thing is like there's weird like weird behavior and weirdos and crime and awful things everywhere but like when it's being a, a politicized to this degree, you have to, you know, take a closer look at it and really think about what what the motive is. And the president's not going to announce it, denounce it, I mean, because it's helping his cause, even though he's actively doing things that that don't work toward it and don't align with what people are saying. I mean, really think about like all the things he's had to say about women from nasty to worse. Yet the literal child predator that we all know is very, very guilty, like a monster of a human, is the one he wishes well. Like it's, I just, I think it's obvious tiptoeing. And I, I guess my, the bigger point is, regardless of the the Trump piece, is like everyone is is hiding behind this by saying that they're just like fervently um, fighting for the children, want to save the children. It's all about the children. But it's not all about the children if you're conveniently only associating people with a particular political party, not holding everybody accountable, regardless of if they're currently in office. Like, But also just the general premise of, of spreading the messaging of trusting no one, being suspicious of everything, twisting people's words, thinking people are speaking in code, not taking anything for what it is. It's such a dangerous uh, mentality to become a part of, especially in the midst of a public health crisis. And it just disturbs me deeply. And honestly, I also didn't put a ton of stock in this or want to talk about it. I did not draw attention to it. But B, until the whole Wayfair thing went down, I don't think I really understood how like deep the belief was uh, in this whole theory. Um, because when Wayfair was accused of selling children in storage lockers because people noticed that some products on Wayfair were named after really specific female names that could be tied to missing persons. And also there was a major disproportionate, disproportionately high prices for certain products that seemed sketchy. And so the argument was Wayfair is selling children with these names who are missing people in these storage lockers or whatever. Like, I mean, stretch of all stretches. And I kind of on Instagram, since I, were, you know, understand dropshipping, since I sold products on Wayfair, since I backed out of selling on Wayfair because it was a bad financial decision for me. I have no I have no reason to defend Wayfair, but I could have I knew there were several reasons why that would look bad and might be happening. And I tried to explain that I think it's 85 percent uh, processes and intricacies of a drop shipping virtual storefront model that people don't understand um, because a lot of the naming and pricing is uh, automated, algorithmic and sourcing from a variety of different places that are random. And this could happen for um, but there was a chance a creep in merchandising specifically chose for certain things to source from like, you know, lists of missing persons names or something weird like that. I don't really know. And I don't think Wayfair did a great job of addressing it. But there were a couple different ways that the naming thing could happen. I don't blame people for being concerned. I blame people for not 
for jumping to the worst case scenario without doing any due diligence whatsoever. And then for coming at people like me that were just trying to logically explain why you shouldn't be scared that children are being sold in lockers because here's how dropshipping works. But that, then to tell, you know, re- respond to me being like, you live in Chicago and you are too close to me. I'm, I, I frankly am scared because you're cl- clearly involved. I got a lot of messages that were like, take off your blinders, sis. I, I, you know, I'm like, what? So because I, I didn't think I was doing anything controversial. So anyways, the only reason I bring this up is because uh, there a lot of times there's an explanation for something. Occam's razor. The simplest answer is, is often the most accurate. And um, even the disproportionate prices. Uh, I explained like that is often a tactic when you don't have something in stock, but you don't want to lose the SEO associated with the listing and deactivate it, take it down or market is sold out to keep the listing live. You just put it at a price nobody will buy it at. But what was happening is like, so there'd be a pillow for $30. But if you filled, I saw this all over TikTok, then there'd be a customization bar. And if you typed in, uh, you know, a name into the customization bar for the pillow, it would shoot up to $10,000. People on TikTok were like, why would a pillow that inscribed with Mary cost $10,000? Clearly, Mary's a person that they're selling. You could have typed in potato and it would have said $10,000. Why? Because they weren't customizing pillows at that time. And instead of disabling that field and taking down the listing, they just wanted to sell the regular pillows and they made the customized pillows disproportionately priced so nobody would buy them and therefore they didn't have to fulfill those orders. The other problem with that sort of pricing, though, is that a lot of pricing algorithms will have formulas built in like if X competitor it, you know, is this percent off of our price and make our price 90% of their price. And I know this because the reason I had to get off Wayfair is because it would automatically pit me against myself in my own sales channels where I captured the bulk of the margin and undercut my own pricing independent of what I want it to be cost, what, what I wanted it to cost. I had no control over pricing, which was incredibly frustrating for me. And to ultimately be undercutting my own pricing in the area where I got the least margin that was attracting the most traffic, it was a horrible business decision for me and I had to ultimately back out of it. So there are a lot of reasons why pricing could be skewed. Beyond that, I would get on and influencers who were pretending to ha- like be doing intellectual TED Talks would say things like, I, you know, I was, uh, I, I re- uh, my husband bought a $17,000 table and we reached out to the manufacturer directly and we said, why is this $17,000? And customer service person was like, I have no idea. I don't, that's not even what we name the product or price it. And they were like, obviously selling children. And I was like, no, <laughs> the, the entire point of a virtual storefront is to uh, uphold the facade of being a retailer that stocks houses, has inventory of products when they actually have none. And they're leveraging a network of drop shippers, wholesalers, manufacturers, um, uh, to directly send products to the customer on behalf of Wayfair. And Wayfair gives you like the label and the packing slip and all the stuff to brand what like the mats I was sending directly to customers directly, but they were being branded as if Wayfair was sending them. The customers couldn't get in touch with me for returns, anything. I couldn't get in touch with them because if Wayfair enabled that sort of direct contact, they would be allowing people to go around the middleman for going their cut and giving me direct business. So when these influencers were like, it's so sketchy that it was so hard to find the manufacturer and get in touch with them. I'm like, well, that's the reason for that. And also a person answering the phones isn't necessarily going to be involved with the high level operational negotiations or intricacies of the contract with Wayfair and understand how they do their pricing and naming and why that table would be expensive and or have a different name. Because again, the wholesaler has to drop ship it, but they don't necessarily have control over the pricing and naming. Um, also 
these pricing algorithms, the reason they are designed to constantly go up and down and undercut each other and why, you know, those things like um, camel, camel, camel exist that, you know, it's like, why is a thing of toothpaste going up and down by four dollars depending on the day? It's because of these dynamic pricing models that operate off of the price of other comparable goods at other retailers. Amazon, Overstock, Walmart, Wayfair, all of these places are leveraging a lot of the exact same furniture, home goods, whatever it is, from the same manufacturers. And the exact same product within Wayfair will be labeled as 10 different things at 10 different prices. And then across all the other retailers, it'll be labeled as 10 different things with 10 different prices. Why? Because within Wayfair, they have, well, over 15 million products. So that therefore, that's also why they arbitrarily used to name everything. And I know people that have worked at Wayfair that have stuff named after them because they ran out of ideas. In October of 2019, they adopted this dynamic automatic naming model that sources from a variety of locations to create names on its own. And even sharing the video, people still didn't believe me, but whatever. Um, Wayfair has over 15 million products. They have 90 subsidiary brands. And those subsidiary brands aren't really real entities. They're just ways to uh, brand and position the style, decor, the aesthetic of the furniture piece. So the exact same table could be optimized and show up for a variety of search terms. So it's not pigeonholed into one aesthetic or, you know, home category. The exact same plain coffee table could be considered mid-century modern. It could be Hollywood Regency. It could be shabby chic. It could be, you know, contemporary. It could be Dutch colonial. Like, I don't know. But they'll, you know, put all of those things under different sub-brands that kind of relate to that type of vibe and aesthetic with different keywords and give it the best chance of populating for a person's specific needs. And beyond that, give it a competitive price that gives it the best chance of selling through relative to their other competitors that are literally selling the same product from the same manufacturer, drop it, drop shipping to the customer, but just positioning it in a specific way to optimize SEO. It's actually very normal and it's not weird. And that's another thing I saw influencers doing being like, why are all of these tables the exact same, but they have different names and different prices? That's why. So I just, it's one of those things where I think there was a little bit wrong. I think there's definitely an oversight as it relates to where those names were sourcing from and or some creep in merchandising that thought that would be a good idea. Everything else is pretty explainable. And they are... even if something's a little wrong, it doesn't have to be worst case scenario. And to jump from that to selling children in lockers is is the type of thing where that it, I just, I don't know, it really bothered me that nobody, the, the lack of willingness to um, critically think through this and to accept the well-intentioned input of somebody. When people reached out or responded and were like, you're clearly involved. I was like, no, bitch, I read the pamphlet. I sold on the site. I did the work. I know. I understand this. I, <laughs> why is the assumption that, like, not everybody defends things out of guilt, unlike you, I guess, because I don't think you have a like to stand on because instead of providing me a decent argument, you're just coming at me, accusing me of some ulterior, quite offensive motive, actually. There's, no, there's nothing more, like, that's a horrible thing to project onto somebody or suggest they're a part of. It's just, it's disgusting. It's criminal. It's, it's inhumane. And you're not like if theoretically, if you're trying to change hearts and minds, recruit, get your point across, the way to go about it isn't probably just to shut people down and call them a predator. Like, are you kidding? I don't blame anybody for caring about the children, 
But I do think it's our responsibility as adults and especially as influencers and disseminators of information to not be baselessly sharing extreme, extreme views, assumptions and accusations that muddy the waters and deter people away from a noble cause that actually does deserve the spotlight and our attention. And to not promote the, the active rejection of any government directives when we're in the middle of a public health crisis. That's incredibly dangerous, too. It, this I don't even think that it's the conspiracy theories for me would justify the <laughs> amount of disdain I have uh, for the sharing of this stuff, because that's that's the lighthearted bullying uh, that I want to save for things that are uh, more charming uh, offshoots of one's personality. Oh, my gosh. Wait. OK, so uh, this is funny. I there's literally an article just posted by The Atlantic. That is called The Women Making Conspiracy Theories Beautiful, How the Domestic Aesthetics of Instagram Repackage QAnon for the Masses. Um, and they call out Jalen Schroeder. I wonder, I think I still follow her, actually. Not because I support the behavior, but because I, st- I need to talk about things that I d- approve and disapprove of. And I actually thought it was interesting watching this develop over the course of COVID just in terms of understanding the way this is leaked into the mainstream and how most people might associate these conspiracy theories with, you know, people in basements on the dark net. But what it actually looks like nowadays is aesthetically pleasing Pantone colored, you know, Pinterest quotes and suburban moms and people that are really just mostly talking about the children that I, I don't know if they know what the roots of this movement are and what it's so closely intertwined with. Anyway, so some of what the article says the all caps advice show up every day for something you believe in belongs to one of the least remarkable categories of Instagram content, visually unchallenging, impossible to disagree with pink. Even if people do not exactly know how to show up every day for something they believe in, particularly during a pandemic, the basic spirit of the message is blandly uplifting for a millisecond during a bleary eyed morning scroll. Uh, Hardly anything about it would dissuade the casual follower from double tapping her appreciation before moving on. But this particular image posted in March by the Utah-based fashion, beauty, and parenting influencer Jalen Schroeder to more than 50,000 followers is accompanied by a series of hashtags that include the initialism WWG1WGA, where we go one, we go all, a motto used by adherents of the QAnon conspiracy theory. The QAnon conspiracy theory is flexible and convoluted, but generally posits that President, President Donald Trump was locked in a battle with the deep state and is attempting to bring down a ring of pedophiles and child traffickers that counts various high-profile politicians and celebrities as co-conspirators. Kind of talks about how on the surface she just talks about like her abdomen surgery and like sells products and talks about her kids and blah, 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 but like interjected in there with these like really extreme theories. And I, I, I won't read the whole thing to you. I'll put the link in the show notes. But anyways, yeah, I just saw this. Wish I'd seen it before I talked about it. But um, it, yeah, definitely goes through what I think is the, a really interesting um, side effect of this movement amongst bloggers and influencers. They said that a lot of the people they talked to that they think they reached out to commenters on some of these posts that were just like, no, we just want to save the children. They weren't or didn't act like they were familiar with Pizzagate or QAnon, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier. I think that the child trafficking uh, data is so triggering, so scary and s- relatable to anybody who know like who cares about kids who has a pulse. Right. Like it's it's horrifying information that you want to spread. But then you don't realize you're kind of like sharing accounts that go deeper into to much more um, convoluted uh, politicized theories. And um, they said also that like nobody would talk to them 
because one of the tenets of a conspiracy theory is a distrust of the media. So, of course, they're not going to talk. And what I thought was a little bit funny is that one account (laughs) that's very popular responded saying to The Atlantic saying, do you think I'm dumb, stupid or dumb? Ironically, that's a quote from a Takashi 6ix9ine song. And I don't know if you're familiar, but Takashi 6ix9ine in 2015, pled guilty to a felony count of use of a child in a sexual performance and received a four-year probation period and a thousand-hour community service order, and then in 2018 was arrested on racketeering weapon and drug charges. So, um, you know, take off your blinders, sis. You just quoted a child predator to combat child predators. It is a gateway to get people on board of a movement because you would never oppose that. And it's just wild. But anyways, I'll stop talking about it. Again, I'm not interested in having this podcast be overly politically entangled when I just I think like this year is so stressful. We need we do need content that escapes. And I take my responsibility seriously in terms of the things I influence and the issues I'll talk about. But like, I don't know, like now I'm in a bad mood. You know what I mean? That's like I think that's uh, tough for me, too, is like so much of this stuff brings me down and I want to just be able to like entertain you and uh there's just a lot of nonsense going on in the world you guys but anyway moving on to brighter to greener pastures can i just say okay so last week on patreon i um i finished off the dress code episode i i cut out 40 plus minutes of audio of me like making fun of wedding and party dress codes because i wanted to talk about school dress codes uh and i put it on patreon And in that, I told this really dumb story, maybe the dumbest of my career that makes me laugh really hard for no reason. I just I got I get I've gotten so many DMs about that story. And it's like the stupidest thing. And um, as I'm sitting here, I just got a DM about it anyway. uh, Actually, maybe maybe I'll just tell you as a transition because I need to, like, get out of the QAnon headspace. Um, It's it's truly so stupid. Long story short, my husband and I were driving to see family in Ohio. (laughs) And. We like left early. I we wanted coffee so bad, and we were on like a stretch that we couldn't find. I don't know. I don't remember the specifics, honestly. But like, there's some reason why we hadn't had any coffee, and we wanted some really, really badly. There was this like cow emporium that was like this cow themed dairy park, essentially. That like, I don't know. You could like pet cows. You could eat a bunch of cheese. You could sample chocolate milk, strawberry milk, regular milk. There's like a barn. There was like uh, there was all sorts of cow related activities, and then there was a gas station. And I saw a sign that said there was, you know, at this exit, at this cow place, there was a place you could get cow fee. I was like, that's cute. Little play on words. We need some cow fee. And (laughs) we spend the next 15 to 20 minutes going around different parts of this, like, cow megaplex, uh, asking, you know, the gas station and, like, I don't know, the cheese place and the person by the barn. And, like, we talked to all these different people. And I'm like, hi, do you know where the cow fee um, is? We're looking for for where we can have some cow fee. And like, dead blank stare. No clue what I'm talking about. And I'm like, the, the cow fee. Like, I saw, I just saw a sign for it. And they're like, ma'am, that's like, we don't know what that is. We don't have anything like that here. And I was like, it's so weird. This happened at the first stop at the gas station. Went another place. I was like, hi, could you point me in the direction of the cow fee? No one, no one has any idea. This goes on and on. And Craig's like, okay, let's just drop it. And I'm like, no, there's coffee here. We need to find the cow fee. So what I didn't realize I was doing is over and over, I was just saying cow fee to everyone I talked to. And I felt, I thought it was a glitch in the matrix. I was like, oh my God, the sign's right there. Why is nobody acknowledging 
that there's a cow fee on the premises on the premises. And finally, I um, settle on a, on a chocolate milk. Uh, and at the register, again, I'm telling like these. This is all very murky now. I told I think I might have gone into more detail on Patreon. And I might be mixing up details, but it's something along the lines of I finally said at the register, like, yeah, like I this, you know, I'm excited for my chocolate milk, but like I really wanted some cow fee because it was advertised that you guys like there's a place to get cow fee, but I can't find it. And nobody needs, seems to know what I'm talking about. And then another blank stare. And I'm like, huh, par for the course. This is all everything's a lie. We live in a simulation. And then finally, I have the uh, brain cells to say, also, yeah, we're just looking for some coffee. And she goes, oh, you mean the cafe? And I was like, oh, my God, you mean to tell me I just said coffee? It's like all of these people. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And they not, never once thought maybe I meant the cafe. I'm the first person to misunderstand the wordplay, to mispronounce it. And in retrospect, does it have two E's? No. Is it my fault? Yes. But I, I, there's no way I'm the first person to think that. And I just can't believe how long it went on and how many times I never clarified that I actually wanted coffee and I just kept saying coffee. <laughs> okay, I feel like my spirits are brightened. <laughs> I'm sorry you decided to endure that, especially those of you that heard that story twice. These things always happen, though. Like, uh, specifically around my husband, I feel like the universe has his back in told you so situations in ways I don't feel, really feel like I deserve. Kind of like, I, I think I've told before, like when we were, um, he, he was in grad school and we were in Rome and we were doing a tour of the Vatican um, and there was like a serious student discount and he's a student. And I was like, yeah, we're students. He's like, well, you're not a student. And I'm like, no, we're students. We're students of God. And also, the big guy never meant to commercialize this. I don't think, uh, who's, who's profiting off of this? Where, do we even know where this money's going? Do, there's a lot of nonsense that goes on with the Catholic Church. I don't think it's the biggest deal if I leverage your student discount and we save some money. Because we didn't have a lot of money at the time and we were on an expensive vacation. And I don't know, it's God's house. Should, we should be allowed in. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I wasn't trying to like scam anybody. But he was just like, no, no. And I was like, why? And he's like, do not lie. At the Vatican, like we were standing outside St. Peter's Basilica. We were in God's country. Mind you, neither of us are very religious. Not anymore. And um, he just was like dead set on like, do not lie at the Vatican. Do not lie when we're steps from the Pope. Now's not the time to play fast and loose with the old Ten Commandments. And I was like, whatever. And long story short, um, as I tried to finagle myself a student discount with cash that I recently got from ATM, like clockwork, lightning struck down. The big guy was like, yep, nope, he was right. Don't mess with me on my turf. My debit account got drained, sight unseen, uh, from the place I went to get cash to try to finagle my student discount. And getting a debit card drained. Debit card fraud is not the same as credit card fraud. It is cash. It is different. It is harder to fight, harder to get back the money for. And uh, I don't know, by, by not trying not to pay an interest fee to God's house, God has been making me pay for life. I feel like with all of these told you so situations that happen specifically in front of Greg, that makes me seem like I lack common sense that I normally have. And it's kind of this funny phenomenon. Anyway, it's the con artistry for me. It's a cow fee for me, I guess. The last thing. Oh, this is just like something offhand that I wanted to mention. But when I was doing my Venn diagrams, um, I like, I don't know, it kind of chicken scratched, like messily was playing around with the berry picking travels for blooms, pumpkin patch triad. 
somebody gave me a compliment that hits hits so deep. So it's so heartfelt. It means so much to me. Uh, I wanted to tell you guys about our last sponsor of the day. It is one of our favorites, one of our saviors amidst quarantine. It is Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where millions come together to take the next step in their creative journey with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people on topics including you know, illustration, design, photography, video, uh, freelancing, and, and so much more. I know I'm a broken record, but like, and especially later on in the episode, I'm going to talk about uh, like we're people are spread so thin right now. I know so many people are like working from home and watching after their kids and trying to figure out childcare and virtual doing virtual learning. And there's just a lot on people's plates. And I genuinely like skills, Skillshare as not only a place to like spend time on yourself and your skills and your passions and just do something new and use a new part of your brain. Um, but also there's courses that can help you better manage your life and time. There's one that they're offering right now that I thought it was really interesting um, that I am probably going to take <laughs> called Productivity Masterclass Principles and Tools to Boost Your Productivity. That helps us all, you know, approach our days more efficiently. But also I'm, I love the lifestyle section of courses because it's like style your space, creative tips and techniques for interior design that like anybody can apply. You just think, you know, like basics, like three corners of light makes a huge difference that you might not know if you didn't go to school for this. But these classes uh, taught by experts are kind of great insight into tips and tricks that you can learn on your own pace. There's a brewmaster's guide to flavor emulation if you want to brew your own beer. Uh, there's a lot of there's easy and versatile baking. A lot of people are living that sourdough life right now. The perfect grilled cheese and mini class to master the sandwich. Like I kind of love these types of courses, but of course there are also plenty of resources for you know, serious entrepreneurs, freelancers, marketers, artists that not only will help you monetize your craft, but also refine it. And um, I just like to read new different fun classes every week. But anyway, you guys really love this sponsor and I've worked with them for a while. And I've heard from a lot of you that said it has made a huge difference in expanding your horizons amidst kind of being stuck inside. And, you know, I love, love, love to hear that because I always want people to not rob the world of their gifts that I think just lie dormant so often, not in a way to, you know, I don't want to pressure you, but just in terms of like, if it would fill your soul in some way to explore and discover new skills, by all means, I think you should try. Uh, members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes with hands-on projects from a community of millions and an annual subscription. Um, it, it comes out to like less than $10 a month. So if you want to explore your creativity and get two free months of premium membership at skillshare.com slash be there in five, that's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started today and join by heading to skillshare.com slash be there in five. Two free months, unlimited access to thousands of classes, skillshare.com slash be there in five. Thank you to Skillshare. Somebody gave me a compliment that hits, hits so deep. So it's so heartfelt. It means so much to me. I blushed. It's like you, you, you couldn't pick a nicer thing to say to me than that I have popular girl handwriting. Popular girl handwriting is a phenomenon I'm obsessed with because it is so real, it's so ubiquitous, and it is exactly what my handwriting is modeled after. But there's a progression of popular girl handwriting, and I did modify this in adulthood because popular girl handwriting in middle school, high school, if you are of the age where you pass notes, you shape them like footballs, you shape them like fortune tellers, you, you know, would go to great lengths to uh, pour out your heart and soul kind of out of context to a friend who didn't write you back, and then it was tense. 
Maybe you passed a note, you know, do you like me? Do you want to go out with me? Check yes or no. A boy named Thomas in sixth grade did ask me out and I said yes. And then I changed my answer to maybe and then I never followed up. So technically, I guess we are still together. Um, You know, I have so much there's so much lore and so so many amazing things that go down on loose leaf paper from, you know, those awful quality stackable mechanical pencils where each like little bit of like the white plastic with the lead, like it, it like loads like a gun. <laughs> and when the pencil runs down, you take it off and use the next one. They don't last long. And the, the graphite isn't smooth. It's no way. It's no, not even close to the caliber of a Ticonderoga. And uh, also those pens that have like six colors that you can choose from that literally only work. They, they, they each color one pass. Green never even flows. The blues and the reds are usually fine. You don't buy a pen with six different colors, like around an, a, a wheel with like pegs at the top to use black ink. Um, I, I think about milky pens. I used to buy Tic Tacs and milky pens with my lunch money and my love for note writing, note taking, school supplies, doodling and pens and pencils and notebooks and, and, and like fresh journals. Like I do think there's a lot of women you know, like it, it, it's like it sounds nerdy on the surface, but it's actually a not not like other girls thing. But like, I think there's a lot of women that just like get aroused by like fresh notebooks and pens. And I'm not afraid to say it. I get so excited. I, I, I love nothing more than a fresh notebook and a pilot G2, mm, typically a 0.07 millimeter. I'll go for a 0.05 if I really am feeling fine. LOL. Um I'll I'll go for a paper made at times too. The paper. Let me look. I need to look through my collection because this is what you want to be listening to. What is my paper? I I think I love a paper made ink joy. Oh, here's a uni ball. Uni balls are like they're tough. They bleed. They they have that gorgeous fine tip, but they leak really easily out the kind of like ridges in where you know close to where you hold the pen. And uh, I just feel like uni balls, while great on paper are impossible for lefties don't even try it's smear city uh and they're kind of like the official sponsor of ruined ll bean initial monogrammed dual pocket backpacks of the 90s because they just straight up bleed in your pockets i kind of have a point to all this maybe (laughs) but i think popular girl handwriting is a really funny thing to talk about because when you're younger it's this type of print that's really fat really bubbly sometimes a little curly swirly dot the hearts with eyes maybe some suns it takes a long time to emulate because you have to pick up your pen with every stroke every letter and you don't connect it in kind of a messier cursive style and i would study the handwriting of popular girls i would do full like first grade capital a lowercase a capital b lowercase b i've i've been obsessed with handwriting since i could write with my hands and i that's why I cried when I signed my book deal. I, I've cried anytime I've signed a big contract uh, because and I kept my name because I always I signed my name so much and I've doodled and done artistic silly things so much that never meant anything that I always said, if I ever do anything with my life, if I ever live out the dreams of this little girl, Catherine Kennedy, I want the work and the dreaming that went into making that happen to be hers. I want it to be Catherine Kennedy's. I want to sign my name and not somebody else's name. And 
I I don't know why I've always like felt really strongly about this. But anyway, I I practice my signature. I mean, I know everybody did, but like I really did. Like my K's are fierce and I'll show you sometime. <laughs> but anyway, just a side note. It's like my keeping my name is less of a feminist pursuit. I love my husband. I'd happily take his name, but I've always had in my head the type of work I wanted to do and been very funny about my name being on it. That said, I can officially change my name and still go by Catherine Kennedy. I'll probably do that eventually, but I'm kind of holding out till I need like a really good Christmas or birthday gift, a la Heather Dubrow, because when Heather Page Kent conveniently uh, switched her name to Heather Dubrow, probably when Terry Dubrow got his own show, uh, she, she, you know, she follows the spotlight. Uh, he seemed pretty excited. So maybe I'll do the same at some point. Um, but yeah, and that's another reason why he just like is very, uh, very supportive. Not a lot of guys are down for that, which is unfortunate. Um, but I appreciate his understanding that it's just like, I don't know. It's funny. I feel like some people like really fantasized about the name change, but I always, even though it was kind of more about like the point at which I got married and being like having a career more centered on like my persona um, and just my attachment to my name, my attachment to my own family, even though now Greg's my family, obviously, I just felt like I could, we could be family without having to like absorb his identity, you know? It's like, but also I've, at the time it wasn't that deep, but I've been reading a lot more about like suffragettes and there's this one named Lucy Stone, I think so underrated that I'm going to talk about at some point closer, closer to the election. Cause I really want people to like revisit the drama of the women's suffrage movement. And beyond that, the effort, the immense effort put in by so many people that de devoted their entire lives, got arrested, got assaulted, got kicked out of things, were publicly shamed were, you know, walking on foot, taking wagons, going to conventions, protesting in incredibly dangerous circumstances. These women did everything in their power to set us up, the women of the future, to not be disenfranchised in the same way they were as taxpayers who didn't weren't able to cast a vote for their own government, their own municipalities. These women, like, it's so crazy how much effort and, you know, 100 years went into this. Many of these women died devoting their life to this and never casting a single ballot. And you can't get off your lazy ass to go vote? Like, are you kidding me? I just think if we, I just want to like revisit some of this stuff and I'm, I'll do it later. But uh, I just think it's so important to, well, also understand that the women's suffrage movement is very glossed over uh, in terms of the division and, uh, you know, ostracizing of black women when it came down to the intersection of issues of abolition and suffrage and the argument of who should be enfranchised first black men or white women essentially leaving black women out of the equation entirely i mean it's, it's terrible but there's there's there are suffragettes who split off who aligned with abolitionists who prioritized that and i just think it's an interesting story of elizabeth katie stanton's and uh, susan b anthony's versus women like lucy stone who was one of the trifecta that is responsible and got Katie, Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony involved with suffrage. But when she aligned with the abolitionists, she split off and uh, started a, a separate um, like organization, essentially, uh, for women's rights and suffrage. And uh, since Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Katie Stanton largely wrote uh, the literature for what we know to be the history of the suffrage movement, they largely left Lucy Stone out of it. And it's messed up. And I want to fight for her because I love Lucy. And Lucy Stone was, the, I believe, the first woman to take uh, the verbiage of needing to obey her husband out of her wedding vows. She was one of the first women to fight that she didn't have to change her name. 
she I mean, she she was like the she was a feminist when feminism was not only unpopular, it was borderline dangerous to your livelihood. And um, I just think people don't talk about her enough. So anyways, these are the things I dream about deep diving that I have to figure out a way to like hook people or essentially trick them into listening to my historical podcast. <laughs> oh, I never really finished my commentary about popular girl handwriting. But my only other point was it went from fat and curly and really like um, clean and difficult to emulate with hearts on the eyes to well like then there was this period of time where everybody was doodling with markers this lettering where the ends almost went out like a serif but it was more like you put upside down arrowheads on the end of each letter and kind of like conjoin them with the letters this was this really popular way to do lettering and i noticed that if you could draw well and doodle well and draw binder covers and markers and use markers and do this really fun lettering that people like were obsessed with and wanted to decorate all of their binders and notebooks with like popular people talk to you. I took the hint. I wanted it in on that lunch table. I wanted attention from boys who are six inches shorter than me. I, I, I wanted the hot goss. I, the, the popular popularity as a currency was such a thing in middle school. Like I can't even express it. And there was this token group of mega hotties and they were really exclusive. Uh, but I noticed them and older girls would talk to you if you could draw binder covers. Naturally, I took to task with my markers, taught myself how to letter very well, um, actually became quite artistic as a result. Like I said, I'm kind of a B student. Like I, I know I'm smart and I know I could get better grades, but I don't know. It's just like, I was fine with Bs, uh, cause it allowed me to have more, to achieve more balance. And by balance, I mean spend the majority of class time learning how to doodle and do lettering. Uh, but it's kind of a funny thing where, I, as I've said before, when my uh, friends from elementary school, middle school, whatever, came to visit me in Chicago right after I started the doormat business, I took them to my first office. It was like an exciting whole thing. They were so proud of me. And I was like, how random is this, right? And they were like, this is the least random thing you could possibly do. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, you've been drawing, painting markering letters your entire life like if anybody ever needed anything written you would do it like pep rally banners and you know like trifold science projects and stuff and i was like whoa yeah i like that that's kind of what i was talking about earlier with like connecting things um and not even seeing those things because you're so deep in it do you think you might think that you're ex you have sunk costs or experiences that aren't valuable or don't connect but they do because you yourself follow your natural interests and find yourself in situations where you're doing the things you like. And that in and of itself should be a connection enough where you don't feel like it's needlessly disjointed. But anyway, um, I think that in uh, getting into high school, college, and especially as we enter into the, you know, the golden age, the rose golden age, the 2010s of the blogger years, where people would often take snaps of their handwritten notes, this type of handwriting came, uh, got very popular. That was like an italicized print, half print, half cursive where the letters are sometimes connected. The S's are, pr are a pretty signature type of S that is not the uh, cursive S that is closed at the top, but a regular S looped from the back goes forward. There's a very specific way uh, you do E's. Uh, I, I can basically tell if you uh, were a bully in high school by how you draw your E's. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's like this flowy, chicken scratchy, half print, half cursive handwriting that actually is pretty sloppy and doesn't do any of the letters right because some are needlessly capitalized. It doesn't fit into proper cursive or print, but it's really fast to, to write that way. 
And it actually looks quite nice if you put, you know, a little bit of, uh, of, of muscle into it to make it neat. And I taught myself to write this way because I actually am my default setting. I do not like writing in print. My print is awful. I, since third grade, have preferred to solely write in cursive. I still do mostly write in cursive. But if I'm like over the years, as I've been chicken scratching notes, I've gotten more familiar with like the the popular girl handwriting that I'd argue is more akin to like what bloggers and, and you know, whatever the adult version of popular girls are now. Uh, that is kind of like if anybody has a better way to describe it, let me know. It's what like Bradley hand ITC wishes it was. And I do feel like this, you know, italicized half cursive, half print, you know, token basic handwriting has kind of gone kind of got eclipsed in the mid 2010s when we were all taking a stab at calligraphy and especially modern calligraphy, which really uh, plays fast and loose with uh, proportions and uh, uh, drop caps. Lastly, kind of kind of ties into what I was saying about lettering and doing similar things my whole life and not really realizing it. I wanted to talk for a minute about, I don't know, that's just like the state of the world in terms of uh, there's so many women, uh, especially mothers right now that are having a hell of a time trying to balance their careers with the their children being at home with being a virtual teacher to their children as things open up and there's an expectation to be back in the workplace and not at home. This, if the schools aren't open, there is no childcare. There, there, there are a whole host of situations that are happening. And whether you're a working mom or you stay at home, you have one kid or multiple kids, you're a single mom or not, like in any scenario, what's the confusing state of the world, the unprecedented state of the world the, the world that is marked with ambiguity of not knowing what this looks like going forward is an incredibly stressful and taxing uh, situation to be in. And I just, I don't know, wanted to say to any of you moms out there, like, I'm thinking of you. I'm s- sorry at, that this is happening. Like, every place is different and I don't know a solution, but I do understand that instinct to want to light yourself on fire to keep others warm and that when there's a unique situation or something goes awry, you are the one and the only one to often adjust while everyone else proceeds with their life, not realizing the load you're bearing. I just want you to know that I see you. I hear you. I'm so sorry to teachers, too. My God, paying out of your own pocket, like for all of these like virtual learning tools and having to completely adjust all of your lesson planning to align with this. Like these are uh, thankless, exhausting tasks that somewhere along the way you can easily lose yourself in because you do not have time to physically to to think of yourself to do anything for yourself i was and this like really uh kind of swept over me in terms of like the empathy i feel for you guys as i know a lot of people that listen to this are moms and i mean like if i'm being transparent here the biggest reason i don't have kids yet is because I know I have to make a certain amount of money to justify keeping to do my self-employed career and also have childcare. Because if I am not a primary source of income essential to my family and childcare exceeds what I make, guess who's the childcare? And this is large. I mean, I'm just trying to, I, I, I don't know. I just, this is, these are just anxieties and I don't know how real they are. And my husband's go great. And he's uh, does not su- suggest for a second that would happen. And it'd be fine, too. Like, staying home is great. I think it just, you know, it depends for everybody. And you don't know until you're in that situation. And I think women 
you know, it's fair to have anxiety about the things you don't yet understand. And I think that when you've put sunk so much into something career wise, it's really daunting to think of something happening to that. And up until this point, it's just been my life. And it's just been like a long road. And uh, I don't know, it's it's a little scary. And anyways, that's I know I can't relate on so many levels. But these are things that I certainly think about constantly. And I know a lot of you do too, and are living it and just trying to do what's best for your family. And um, I don't know, I just talking to so many different women on Instagram this week, I just couldn't believe how many were in really uh, tough, impossible, solutionless situations almost. Where, yeah, it's, you know, if people that are at home with their kids are now doubling as uh, teachers, it's hard to get kids to focus at home. If you work from home full time, even if your employer lets you work from home, it's impossible to work while the kids are there because they also need to virtually learn and someone needs to kind of guide them through that process. Meanwhile, there's a pandemic and you can't have just anybody come into your house to help you out. So things are pretty insulated to the family and people don't have, you know, some of the built in help that family might provide at times. You don't want to put you know, older people at risk, especially. I, I think it's tough too when they're, you know, things are opening up and a lot of jobs you can't do from home. But then who's there to watch your kid if they're not in school yet and schools are closed and camps are closed after school programs? There's, and everybody has different opinions about who should be doing what and how. And all the while, you're just trying to do the absolute best you can to keep your head above water at times. And I, upon reading this New York Times article about this, I was I was very struck by it. Um, and I don't know, I just wanted to talk about it, start the conversation and read to you some of it. And I just think it's important for everybody to be aware of just to even be more supportive friends and family members. Uh, the article is called Pandemic Could Scar a Generation of Working Mothers. Working from home has highlighted and compounded the heavier domestic burden borne by women. Now office reopenings may force new career sacrifices. And at one point they talk about as the pandemic upends work and home life, women have carried an outsized share of the burden, more likely to lose a job and more likely to shoulder the load of closed schools and daycare. For many working mothers, the gradual reopening won't solve their problems, but compound them, forcing them out of the labor force or into part-time jobs while increasing their responsibilities at home. The impact could last a lifetime, reducing their earning potential and work opportunities. We could have an entire generation of women who are hurt, Betsy Stevenson, a professor of economics and public policy at the University of Michigan, said of pregnant women and working mothers whose children are too young to manage on their own. They may spend a significant amount of time out of the workforce or their careers could peter out in terms of promotions. Women who drop out of the workforce to take care of children often have trouble getting back in, and the longer they stay out, the harder it is. The economic crisis magnifies the downsides. Wage losses are much more severe and enduring when they occur in recessions, and workers who lose jobs now are more likely to have less secure employment in the future. Even the limited gains made in past decades are at risk of being rolled back. A recent report from the United Nations on the impact of the coronavirus on women warned. Um, this pandemic has exposed some weaknesses in American society that were always there. With day daycare centers and summer camps closed and health concerns lingering about grandparents and others who often make the informal network of backstop childcare, some working women will have no choice but to give up a job. Nor is it clear whether schools will open on a regular routine rather than staggered or part-time schedules when the fall term begins. For single mo mothers, the pressure is intense. Karen Ann Smith's paycheck barely covered her expenses when she was working as a contractor for the U.S. Department of Education. She had medical bills for her 13-year-old son, who has a condition that leaves him constantly fatigued and pained, as well as student loans for her two graduate degrees and $16.50 a month in rent for an apartment in Florida. After she was laid off in mid-March, she was so overwhelmed that she hid in her bathroom with a shower running to catch her breath. That's, I just felt... She didn't receive 
unemployment insurance until two months after applying and then only after sending messages to every state employment worker she could find on LinkedIn. Her landlord threatened to evict her until she wangled rent insurance from the county. Her $500 in savings quickly evaporated. Then she applied for food stamps and sold some old toys on Facebook, even taking small donations from sympathetic strangers on Twitter. Ms. Smith does, does not expect to find another job before fall, long after she exhausts her unemployment vet benefits. It's just too intense. I've thought about nothing else. There's no help. There's no break. When you're worried about keeping a roof over your head, when it's something that fundamental, you can't worry about anything else. Like whether your career is on track or your resume is good. I don't know why, like this article really got to me. Like, because I, I, I just, I feel, I just, I feel, I am like women take on so much and do so much and are so resourceful and can figure anything out and don't need to ask for help. So they often don't and they get in the habit of not doing it. And I think during something like this, it's just like the, the mental, the, 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 not only the financial well being, the career trajectories, but also people's mental health is at stake. Breaks my heart. And like, to work your whole life to get all these grad i mean to, the the that single mother with two graduate degrees that can't find work it's like um anyways sorry i know i'm like reading this verbatim now but i just think it's an important thing to talk about and to keep talking about and to normalize and to problem solve for and to not just you know in the in the name of not complaining or in the name of toxic positivity or in the name of you know trying to keep it all together and not access your feelings like I think it's important to talk about these inequities. Inequities are what need to be solved before there's any chance for equality in any sense. And I think that women are so much less likely to highlight these difficulties because we've endured so many. Like we just have a lot of things harder that like your default setting is maybe accepting a level, a, a high burden that, you know, could potentially uh be lightened if if we're expressing it communicating it confiding in each other having conversations amongst each other being open with our partners challenging our employers and hr departments to have more favorable policies toward women like this discussion regardless of where and how it occurs is the important thing here i would argue and um the article says despite the miserable choices facing many working mothers several economists retain hopes that the increased pressure on families could over the long term for structural and cultural changes that could benefit women, a better childcare system, more flexible work arrangements, even a deeper appreciation of the sometimes overwhelming demands of managing a household with children by partners stranded at home for the first time. We find that men who can work from home do about 50% more childcare than men who cannot, um, an economist at Northwestern University says. This might ultimately promote gender equality in the labor market. But anyway, this article deeply affected me. I was thinking about all of you. I have so many people that reach out and say they listen while they're, you know, when they get home, they're doing dishes or they're feeding at 4 a.m. or they're going on walks. And like, I just feel like a lot, like the age I am and the followers and listeners I have that are so lovely to me, like, I know a lot of you are mothers of young children, or young or old, doesn't matter. And you're hugely struggling. And if you're a solutions based person, like I know many women are, in a solutionless situation, it feels thankless, it feels endless, it feels daunting. And even though I can't relate to you, I certainly understand um, the, the inclination to want to do it all, to be everything to everyone, to have your kids and partner the least impacted, to keep things smooth, but you can't not take care of yourself in the process. You can't not talk about it and, you know, worry for fear you're complaining. And you're very much 
not only allowed, but should uh, be vocal about your situation if you aren't happy with it, if it's impacting your career and your family's well-being. And if you think there's especially something systemic involved, there's policy, policymakers, you know, the, the advocacy, like the things, you know, that need to be navigated to figure out this situation. So there's not a setback or complicated, but I do think the conversations and being vocal about it is a start and it's important and you're entitled to that um, frustration, angst, fear, anxiety, whatever it is you feel. Um, it's a lot. And I love you and I hope you are hanging in there. And uh, I was also going to tell for those of us that are friends and family of people that are trying to navigate this situation, I um, asked on Instagram, like, how can friends and family support you, even if, you know, you can't see them in person, which really throws a wrench into the, the, this whole thing. And um, I compiled a lot of them and put them on an Instagram highlight. It's under teachers. It's also where the teacher wish lists are. That's also where um, a document of resources I compiled uh, for virtual learning for parents and kids. Uh, that's also on the teacher's highlight on at Be There in Five. Um, but anyways, I just thought it was an interesting thing in general because I think I haven't really, I haven't been good about this with my friends that are parents because I think it's, relationships do change when people have kids and sometimes the person who doesn't, isn't, you know, isn't a parent, doesn't really has trouble understanding how the, much your priorities change and there can be distance created and I need to be better about this. I, I don't always know what to ask or how to help because it's kind of just like, I don't know. I, I don't really know what what it entails, but also that's why I encourage people to talk about, to be more vocal, to not feel like you're complaining. I, I think people like this is a really tough situation. And I think women should really step up for each other in this context. And it's, sometimes it's hard to know if you need help, if you don't ask, but for a lot of people that probably won't ask, just a reminder, like respecting parents' decisions to do what's ever best for them, regardless of what they decide to do, to go to school, to to hang back, to be part of, you know, some bubble where their kids can get watched, whether they leave their jobs or they stay at their jobs. It's There's no solution. It's a solutionless situation. And I think that everyone's doing the best they can under these circumstances. And yeah, the anyways, I won't read them all off to you, but um, the highlight, check out the highlight. It just has some good tips from like, you know, offering to FaceTime with kids or uh, like if you can see people in person, just like coming to hang out for an afternoon while they can get some stuff done or uh you know the, the importance of like giving grace to teachers the importance of advocating you know to your hr departments for um more fair you know maternity leaves and uh more fair practices toward uh flexible work hours for parents the ability to work from home like paying attention like voting vo voting for policyholders that prioritize women's health and if you're a, you know just a person in the whatever workplace you're in don't give parents side eye or you know try to give them grief when they, there's a meeting that conflicts with with child care like there's nothing they can do um ask your candidates at all levels about their plans for child the, the child care crisis in this country just always be advocating for mothers and parents at work advocating for paternity leave for you know the, the opportunity for both uh, men and women to have the flexibility to equally parent uh their children especially 
babies. I think a lot of people like will scoff at paternity leave because like they didn't have the kid. Why do they deserve the time off? But actually, that's like one of the most important um, drivers of uh, equality in the labor force because it gives the opportunity not only for both parents to be tasked with the day-to-day minutiae, scheduled routine, and understanding of what goes into childcare, but also, in like the least of the people I know, like my friends, of the mom will do her maternity leave, and then the dad does his, and then they've covered, you know, at least at times even like the first six plus months of the child's life, and have completely split duties, and have set the precedent of splitting duties. Um, just asking about people's day, uh, recognizing this is going on, normalizing this the discussion. Um, mail campaign to company CEOs to implement paid family leave, uh, realize who I was pre-kids is different. I have new priorities now and that's okay. I need to be better about that. Yeah. Wear a goddamn mask. You guys just like, don't make this worse than it already is. Shop small, be honest with open, uh, be honest and open with other moms about your struggles. A lot of people are feeling this and it's helpful. Encourage the men, you know, to step up and pull their weight in the household. Um, I'm just going through this quickly. But yeah, I mean, you guys are wonderful and you know what to do. Uh, oh, this is a good point. You don't ask, just offer something, a meal, an ear, come fold laundry together, no judgment. Just even recognizing the difficulty. Like, I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding that just because you're at home for some reason, like that's like it's not work or it's not hard. And people, I mean, this is like, yeah, I just think in, if you're not in this situation, it's hard to understand how dire it is. And I highly recommend you read that New York Times article just in terms of what this could mean for, um, you know, setting women back in, in the workforce and what we've worked so hard for for so many years and busted their ass who are having being forced to resign. Like, it's so, so upsetting. And like, I don't know, guys, I just want the best for you. But anyway, I guess the other thing, so I won't keep you too long, that I was going to just mention in case it's helpful. I am not a mom. I cannot understand the difficulty of what it's like to wrangle kids schedules and get them to cooperate. I know that like your priorities go out the window and you're just like in survival mode half the time. I don't want to like uh, uh, kidless explain uh, how to live your life. But I just mean this in general. If if at any point in life you're ever overwhelmed at capacity, no bandwidth. I was just going to share the exercise that when I was when I was at my corporate job in like the last phase of it, when I was doing that Six Sigma black belt thing, which is a business process improvement job, we were essentially assigned to go into different business units. Something is broken down and basically find the inefficiency, find the bottleneck, find the root cause of whatever the abstract problem is and correct for it to streamline the organization. And the entire point was these are problems that they can't really pinpoint. It's just not performing well. The product's not doing well. The people aren't doing well. Uh, you know, things are too slow. It, it it could be anything. And um, I just learned a lot because I had to go through months of training, lived in Florida, like separated from the world, had to do all it was. I'm so grateful for it because it really changed the way I saw everything in life and in business, because the idea is to separate ourselves from the uh, you know, the assumptions, the cognitive biases, the heuristics, the way we explain things or the way we uh, shape reality, that it has nothing to do with actual data and everything to do with kind of your assumptions or how used, you, used to your, your your routine you are. And you consider that your normal and your truth when you don't even realize like some things are adjustable. Anyway, again, not trying to tell anybody how to live their life, but this is just something I've done a lot. Um, 
And like, for example, I've told this story before. It just was interesting to me because uh, there was a case where this product was delivering reports to clients late. That's a huge problem to redo the the data processing system to make it faster was going to be like millions of dollars, months and months, if not years, because at, on the surface, it looked like these uh, reports were getting delivered late. But what this BPI, this kind of methodology teaches you to do is collect so much uh, rigorous data to the point where we'd have people time track down to like, you know, five, 10 minute intervals. And you don't even have to do that. But this was pretty granular. And when you look at a person's, you know, a few days or a week at a high level, when you look at a whole organization at a high level, it's unbelievable the amount of waste you find by manipulating the data. This is why I love a pivot table, love a VLOOKUP. Um, and what we found out is that the simpler thing to do was that it was taking people's computers like 15 minutes or so, I forget exactly, to start up in the morning. And then when they had to run and send the reports, they were like getting sent, you know, what roughly 10 minutes late or something. And what on the surface looked like a need to overhaul this entire like data processing system actually was a, a much quicker, cheaper fix that made everything more efficient was getting people new laptops because they didn't realize these desktops with all this like data on it that were like just a little bit dated um, were incredibly slow and it was slowing people down, but it's something they got used to as a new normal and would have never called it out. But in getting people laptops that ran things quicker, started up more efficiently and wasted what was essentially hours and hours of, of lab, you know, paid labor time where people were just kind of sitting there. Uh, it you know, like made a meaningful, like actual Six Sigma impact on the situation and cut down the cycle time on the product delivery immensely. And uh, I say that because I applied this to when I started Be There in Five the Map business. I had two jobs. I was at capacity. I had no bandwidth. I was so overwhelmed. I was so scared. I just wasn't, it wasn't healthy. Like it, sometimes you get to a point where um, manic crazy is your normal and it's, it's not sustainable. And I just did this exercise for a couple of days and paid attention to exactly where I spent my time and wrote it down and realized that this one process from packaging um, to label printing, to putting the label on, to the type of box I had to assemble, to taking it to the post office, it was taking me eight, not eight to nine hours a week. And the important thing with anything in life is you need to figure out the activities where you are essential and you are adding value and you and only you can do the thing versus what is what are the things that you spend a lot of time doing that you actually aren't essential to that somebody else could be doing, whether it's one of your, you know, your spouse, one of your kids, whether you could hire a third party, you know, use the gig economy, outsource it in some way, get a friend to help you out. There's a lot of menial tasks that don't require our brain or our expertise or our knowledge to do them. And in order to run more efficiently, to get time back, to get a return on our time or to spend time on whatever currency you whatever you want back. Do you, do you want back more quality time with your family? Do you want time with friends? Do you want time to be able to put into a new business you're starting? Do you just need to relax? There is a return on reallocating time and money to things that aren't that you are not essential to. And when you're strapped for cash, it's easy to think that it's the right decision for you to do everything. But that's actually not always the case. You are you might be the bottleneck and your time might be better spent in other areas that would actually produce a better return or more cost savings in another way. But if you were working more efficiently and I know this does not necessarily apply to families and kids, but just I know a lot of people are spread really thin right now. And it's just worth considering because by the time I figured this out, got a label printer, 
got a new packaging solution, hired a courier that would take things to the post office. I had an entire day of work back for those five days. And it was kind of fascinating to me because I just didn't even notice how much time I was spending on it. All that to say, I, I, I do, I, I put a lot of this in motion in my life because I have, I've learned in being self-employed that my value is not in the things that are trainable for other people to do. Relinquishing control of parts of your schedule is incredibly important to ever get your life back. It's going to take time to train someone or figure out a solution for the, th- the basically the what is what what is taking, you know, what 20 percent of your daily tasks take 80 percent of your time or weekly? And how can you minimize that? I, a great example is I made so much fun of Instacart earlier, but it's it's li- it's a lifesaver to me. It's I don't have a car and I'm not a good cook and grocery store shopping is not my favorite. I know a lot of people like it, but it is time consuming. It can be hard to wrangle kids. A lot of people who have never used gig economy type third party services might be nervous by them. And honestly, by and large, all bruised produce aside, it's such such a time saver. And that $10, $15 premium on a tip delivery, whatever, to me is worth it to get back hours of my life where I can just when I'm in bed or doing, you know, multitasking can add stuff to my cart and then get it delivered at a certain time. Even just like carrying, you know, heavier things that I don't want to take from Costco. People bringing it to your doors is hugely beneficial. And I think that sometimes, you know, I know that these there's a premium on these things, takeout, delivery, grocery delivery, uh, handy, you know, people or cleaning services. And I know that's not everybody's reality and times are financially strapped. And I don't mean to sound tone deaf in that way. My only point would be if there's a way you can save time and kind of uh, net even by figuring out a way to get something off your plate so you can survive and thrive, uh, I think it's worth considering. But beyond that, remember the people that are part of the gig economy that work for Handy, that work for TaskRabbit, that work for Upwork or Expert 360 or Freelancer or Uber Eats or DoorDash or Instacart, they're a lot of them are people like me, are creatives that are in between jobs, that have recently lost their jobs, gotten laid off. Supporting the gig economy, I think people feel guilty paying for small conveniences, but you're also supporting your community and you're supporting people that are looking for work. And I've relied on sites like Freelancer, Fiverr. Uh, I can't do, what's the one? Either Thumbtack or Up, Upwork requires an MBA or it used to, but I've done stuff on Thumbtack. And that's an important thing to consider, too, if you're in between corporate jobs and you want to be able to work from home and have more flexibility. There's incredible project based work for like subject matter experts in super specific fields. Like some people need consulting from like C-level people. People need attorneys. People need accountants. People need creatives, graphic designers. People need help with sales and prospecting. And I think that people with business trades that seem like VMJs, vague marketing jobs or whatever it may be, don't realize there's actually a, 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 a whole gig economy for those types of roles and third-party contractors that people want to bring in who are kind of at a weird size at their company and need project-based work. So that's just my plug for, it might, sometimes if you are just absolutely going insane, it might be worth it to figure out where you're spending too much time and you're not necessary and could allocate it to someone else, if possible, though I know it's not always possible. Please don't think that I'm assuming everybody has the big bucks. I just mean Nominal fees here and there for convenience sometimes are hugely worth it and pay off. But beyond that, considering working as a part of the gig economy, because I've it's helped me bridge gaps of time and employment, uh, see it as supporting your local community. And the only other thing I've uh, ever done that has helped me when I've been absolutely crazed and spread thin is 
the best, honestly, business advice I ever got uh, as I was uh, starting a business and acting as every single function within it because I didn't have the money to pay anybody else to do it. So I was, you know, my lawyer, my accountant, my marketing person, my supply chain, whatever, these things I wasn't qualified for. As I did those things, I kept a running list of like, here's what I love doing or can at least tolerate doing. And here's what I absolutely hate. And through finding, you know, a way to outsource the things you hate or in the household, this is kind of how I, you know, my husband and I will operate. Like, I don't mind doing things where I can like listen to a podcast and zone out dishes, whatever. Hate trash. Hate walking the dog at night. You know what I mean? And I know this isn't new advice, but like, Sometimes I forget these small things that make a big difference because I do think the elimination of dread from your day makes a really, really big difference. And and I'm just worried about people's mental health here. And like, I do think small ways to inject joy matter. I do think not dreading things matter. And I do think making sure that when there's an unprecedented, unique situation happening, that mom isn't the, the only one having to adjust, right? Uh, empower partners to adjust. It depends on your kids' ages and cooperation level, I know. But I think it's kind of a fun thing, exercise almost, where you sit down and are like, what do you like doing or do you not hate doing? Is it making beds? Is it whatever? And everyone kind of has their responsibility. And um, anyways, I'm the type of weirdo that reads about a lot of parenting um, <laughs> articles and stuff. And I read this once about the importance of like feeling empowered by your duty that you were uniquely selected for based on it being something that you're good at. And it, it makes you sparkle, makes you alive. And I don't know, I was reading about how kids really find meaning in that. I was like, that's so interesting because that's the business advice I was essentially given in that, um, yeah, you assign and reallocate not to give people a, a dreadful chore, but positioning it in a way in like, you can add value to this. You are good at this. I am not. You will dread this. I wouldn't. I will take that. Let's all balance and have the most enjoyable, tolerable chores we can do and in, within our days without having to dread the things that that aren't uh, don't don't make a shine if you will anyway again i'm not i feel badly even i like i don't want to give dumb advice i don't want to be like rachel hollis everything something different works for everybody but i'm a lot less into like the overhauling of character and self-help and doing all this craziness and more like pragmatically what free what will free up your time like i don't pe being drained is a tough thing being spread too thin feels endless and days and days run together and it's just like it's so hard to take a you know step outside of it and, and look at uh where there might be a solution but in an inherently solutionless situation like the one we're in i think the things you can manage reallocate control and streamline in your own life as silly and as that sounds at least for me have helped when i've been in crazier more stressful times it gives you a level of control to otherwise tolerate the ambiguity and as i always say as a person with an, an very ambiguous job, you don't need to be 100% on board with the uncertainty. You don't need to fake your way through it like it's going to be fine. I just try to, every day, I just try to be 51%. I try to be majority stakeholder in feeling energized by the ambiguity and 49% drowning in the ambiguity. And I know it can't always be that way, but I just think people try too hard to find silver linings to make it seem great to, you know, totally overhaul the situation. But I just it's not always realistic, but just try to have majority stake in the control and uh, uh, certainty you at least feel in terms of I will make the most of the situation. We are doing the best we can. And I know what's right for my family and nobody else. And I just have to own that. I have to stand in that. 
And when I my, my mental health is at stake, when I'm not able to be the best version of myself for my kids and I'm, you know, doing all of these things theoretically for them. But what aspects of me are getting lost in the process? Right. Just if you can take inventory and make sure uh, you're not overextending yourself needlessly and, you know, you're willing to ask for help where you need it. I think that's incredibly important because you deserve help. You deserve a break. You guys are all so incredible. And um, I don't know. I just I talked to a lot of people this week in my DMs that had I just had no it's like I knew this was hard, but I, I don't think I understood the depth of how difficult this is for a lot of people. And I don't know if a lot of people I don't know are having those conversations. So I'm sorry if I seem dramatic <laughs> or I'm speaking out of turn. But, you know, so much of my content is just like, you know, frivolous person with no kids just freaking out about their own purpose and career when I know priorities of parents are a lot uh, different. And uh, I want to be able to relate to you, too, <laughs> uh, or be helpful in some way. But anyway, if you want over 100 bonus episodes, Gilmore Girls Deep Dive, Hamilton Deep Dives, interviews with my mom, my sister-in-law, all the, all the good stuff, the personal stuff, Kelly and I's review of more folklore songs, that more, more of that coming, by the way, uh, go to patreon.com slash be there in five. There's a PowerPoint party this Sunday where listeners flip the script. They present. For 20 minutes each on a topic they're uniquely obsessed with that's semi-pop culture or lifestyle adjacent. And we get to be, I don't know, a community and interact and have fun and hear from other people. So I'm not always doing all the talking and the PowerPoint parties are like such a bright spot for me. And as you know, I, 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 I love a corporate representation of a pop culture topic. And this is just a fun extension of, I don't know, a way to drink wine and like analyze stuff together, which I think in these times is, is sometimes what we need. Uh other than that, to support our sponsors, thank you so much to Feels to Nutrafol, to Skillshare. Share this episode if you liked it. I would love that so much, though. I don't know. There's probably, I mean, if you like another episode better, like maybe share that one. Um, and uh, next week I'll resume. I got more entries for uh, Black-owned businesses that I want to pick back up sharing. I The form, don't forget, is on my highlights. The teacher resources are also on the highlights. Um, anything you want to submit podcast to be there in five.com, but for free black owned businesses, uh, for ads, there is a form on my Instagram highlights that says free ads. So please, please fill that out. And, uh, yeah, you guys, I'm sure a million people have said this. It's probably a Vince Lombardi quote, but, uh, my husband's a man of few words, but <laughs> he's helped me a lot because he's calm and he's organized and he doesn't get as like frazzled as I do. And he's just very cut and dry about like adding value, not wasting time. And my biggest issue is always, always, always because I'm controlling and I have high standards and I don't like taking time to train other people. I don't like taking time to ask for things. My argument is always like, I can do that myself. And he's said to me so many times, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I think that's such a generic, basic thing. But again, Rachel Hollis probably said Jesus, probably said Marilyn Monroe, you know, the, the, the whole gang, Audrey Hepburn. But I don't know, sometimes coming from somebody that you respect, it, it kind of clicks with you a little bit more. And uh, that I don't know. I just always am like, yes, I can do it. But should I do it? <laughs> and the answer is pretty usually no. And if you think about what's it, what return is it going to actually produce for me uh, versus how convenient would it be if I got this off my plate? Because it's probably going to take me a lot longer to teach myself than it would for somebody and to pay an expert to do it in a much shorter time, you know, or to ask a friend or family member or whatever, ask your husband, kids, you know, I don't mean, I know I'm talking in a business sense, but I know obviously you're not going to outsource third party things for everything, but 
I actually do. I, I literally use gig. I, I use service task rabbit, Dolly, the furniture moving thing. I use Instacart. I use all of the delivery apps and I know I'm in a city and I know that's really specific to a location, but a lot of these things are everywhere. And I just think people don't have a comfort level with it, but stuff like task rabbit that I have do things around the house. Um, they've, they, you know, hundreds of five-star reviews. They have, um, like they're often background checked and I know you maybe don't want them in the house or whatever, but yard work even, you know, or cleaning when you're not, uh, you know, other people need work too. And I think it's great to be able to provide that for other people that are uh, in those roles, because there's a lot of weirdos out there, but there's a lot of normal people too, that are just trying to get by. Um, anyway, you guys, I played this song on last week's Patreon episode, but not the regular one. I love it. It's from 2015. It's very popular on TikTok right now. Um, it's called Electric Love. I just find it moving. It takes me places. I, I, I love music that soars. And beyond that, it's a cheesy metaphor, perhaps. But I, I like the notion of, um, I don't know, like the lightning in a bottle of it all, of, of, of the electricity of a person. Because I think we all, it's so easy to, to, to feel like your light's out, to feel like you're dimming, flickering, whatever it may be. I used to have a mad that said, don't never let it, you know, don't forget your sparkle. That was popular, like among kids. And even though it's a cheesy phrase, it's kind of true. I think at times you forget to pay closer attention to what lights you up, to be mindful of when you dim, when you may need a, to change a bulb, get a new power source, whatever the heck it is. I think that women possess this incredible power and energy. And the women I know are just so dynamic and funny and interesting and caring and can do everything, like always. And, and, are willing to take on the burden of so many things for so many people just in the name of the love they have for other people. And that's the type of electricity that I think is so powerful about women that I think is so necessary, whether at home or in the workforce. I think that we're truly special creatures, often too willing to dim ourselves. And I, on, I say the same like metaphors. I'm so cheesy. I'm t- it's, it, it, it's the cheesy endings for me. Like I, I, I just always want people to feel good leaving, you know? We talked about some heavier stuff. I, it took me a while to recover from Q. But I, I don't want to sound like, you know, I, I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. Whenever one door closes, I hope one more opens. I mean, what an original thought. Well, I do hope if you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. I also hope whatever lights you up, whatever makes you that electric, powerful force that you know you are, I hope you do more of it. And I hope you take really good care of yourself. You deserve it. Trust me. As always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. Bye.